Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we are here this morning in search of communion with you. We look for a safe place uh, from all the last week's business and noises. We look for quiet from both the blame and praise of other people. We look for uh, refuge from confusing thoughts and, and concerns that occupy our minds at night, and we leave it into your hands. Help us to be still today, not just this morning, but today, that we set apart for you, still in heart and clear in vision. And may there, be, may there fall upon us, Father, a great sense of your power and glory this morning so that we can see all things through the lens of your love. Give us understanding of what your holiness means. Father, our flesh is just marbled with pride, and we confess that. Help us to see who we are in your presence. Keep us from sacrificing your eternal presence for just short-lived and short-term gains. Father, we are content. We are content to leave our lives into your hands. We believe that there they are ultimately safe. We are content to give over our will to your control, believing that we can find righteousness and justice only in you. We are content to leave all the people we love into your care, believing that your love is greater than our own. We are content to leave in your hands the causes that we hold dear, the causes of truth and justice. We are content to leave the fulfillment of your kingdom in your timetable. And we are content to let you show yourself to people we love so that they might know the mercy and the beauty and the goodness that you have for them. Father, we thank you for this morning and we do ask for clarity in this, uh, in this difficult book and difficult passage. And, and bless the reading of your word and the, the hearing of your word. And we also ask that you bless our time as we celebrate the Lord's Supper this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Yeah, when I sent Jerry that passage, I sent it to her with a little emoji with gritted teeth, like, you know, this is going to be a joyful passage for Sunday morning. But it is the word of God, and uh, it has something to say to us. Um, and uh, continuing on this, this um, theme of sort of a downer, <laughs> I want to show you this image here. This belongs to the um, United States Holocaust Memorial Museum, and uh, it was uh, filmed as uh, the, the um, photographer took this photograph to capture the reaction of the audience. The audience are German prisoners of war. And uh, they were forced to watch uh, clips of what went on and what happened in concentration camps. And the photographer wanted to see their reaction to it. Uh, this is part of a program they called denazification of Germany. And it was part of the things that, and the Allied forces got together to do this to try to denazify uh, the German civil uh, structure and infrastructure. And uh, so not only did they do this, but uh, in, in towns in Austria and Germany, they had posters, photographs all over in public places. So the townspeople would see them and see what happened. And in some towns places, they would, some towns, they would have uh, the people where the concentration camps were actually dig the graves of the victims that were killed as the Allied forces uh, encroached on, on, uh, on Germany. And I, I saw this long ago, and, and I'd seen this a while back. Uh, it, this various tactics, but it was, it was called forced confrontation. They were to have this, this um, 
face-to-face -face various, uh, various tactics and experiences of World War II, especially in the concentration camp. And I got to thinking about that this, this week when we were looking, when I was preparing for Isaiah chapter 1, and it kind of dawned on me that this was sort of the task of the prophets, that they were kind of called to sort of paint this picture of the people of Israel and the people of Judah of what was going on so that they would overcome their numbness, overcome their, their apathy, overcome their, their blindness to what they had been seeing and what they had done. And basically they're calling them to experience the experience, experience what they were experiencing. And this was kind of the, um, the, the task of the prophet. And Isaiah especially had to be had to be aware of his own experience and be aware of his own experience, his own experience, in order for his message of hope to have any weight at all. So Isaiah very well knew his own depravity, and he was very well acquainted with the corruption and the misery and, and the depression and the despair that was, that was going on. He understood all of this, and we saw this last week in Isaiah chapter 6 when God appeared to him and, uh, and gave him this vision, and his response was, I am a man of unclean lips. In other words, I am a man of unclean character, and I live among a people of unclean lips, of unclean character. And this just gave him more, more weight to his marriage, uh, to, his, to his message, I'm sorry. Experience the people of God is, is what he was after, that they would experience what they were after, that they would experience the grief that they were, they were actually living at the moment. But not only that, not only is a prophet supposed to understand and experience what the people were going through, he also experienced what God was going through. And this is what I mean by living on the edge of the inside, that on the inside of God's people, but at the same time on the edge where, where people are there and, and they can see and experience and know what they're going through, but at the same time, he's got to know what God is going through, that God is going through rejection and grief and, and sadness and disappointment uh, but he also goes, is also experiencing a joy of welcoming back a child. So the prophet has this sort of dual uh, perspective here to experience and see what the people are, are doing and seeing and experiencing, but also understand what God is feeling and his disappointment and his rejection. And that's to me what living on the edge is all about. And it comes with an incredibly emotional price tag. And if we respond to God's calling, we need to be prepared for that price tag. It is a costly, emotional ups and downs. It is a radical way to live. It is incredibly different and incredibly difficult. Uh, living on the edge of the inside, God calls us to come out of our own numbness so that we can call other people out of their own numbness and apathy and rejection. It is to call others to overcome what they're seeing in themselves in order to restore their relationship with God. And that's exactly what we have here in Isaiah chapter 1, verse, verses 1 through 20, as we, uh, as we begin it. And the first verse just kind of gives us the entry point of Isaiah's ministry. Uh, <clears throat> we looked at his call in chapter 6 last week, and it is kind of out of chronological order, which sometimes bothers us Westerners. But what he's trying to do is kind of lay out this this, this uh, reason for the call and, uh, and present the case of why God had called him. And it's very, I, didn't, I didn't hit on this really hard last week, but he does mention that he was called at the year that King Uzziah died. And not only was that to kind of set us into the historical context, but I really think that, that the author is trying, the poet is trying to get across something else here, that because when kings or presidents or prime ministers or dictators or whatever 
when they're in power, they think what they're going to do is going to last forever, and it doesn't. And I think Isaiah's point here is that this is the thing that King Uzziah did, whatever he did, and he was a pretty good king, probably thought it would last forever, but it doesn't. Only God's word lasts forever. And that's what's eternal. And I think that's what he's getting at. And then we come back to chapter 1, and he sort of gives us this background of where he's, where he's ministering. He's, he's primarily directing his ad addresses and his ministry toward Judah and Jerusalem. And he does sort of sometimes talk to Israel in the northern kingdom, but they're more a kind of a, an object lesson for Judah. But I think it's important that we get the historical context of Isaiah in order to understand what he's up against. Most of us know the story that Israel, after the, after the reign of Solomon, uh, the Israel split over taxes. Okay? There was a northern kingdom and a southern kingdom. And the northern kingdom kept the name Israel, and the southern kingdom took the name Judah, and that's where Jerusalem was. That's where the Davidic line, that's where David's line was, is in the southern kingdom. And in the northern, there were, there were no good kings in the north. All right? In the south, there were eight. There were eight where the Bible says they did right in the eyes of the Lord, and they were more or less okay. Okay. Well, in this time in the 700 B.C., more or less, um, uh, Assyria began to grow in, in strength. And they came over and they conquered pretty much the north and occupied the north. All that province, not just Israel, but some of the other provinces and some of the other city-states. But then they kind of got distracted and started uh, dealing with some problems that were in the eastern side of the empire. And uh, while they were over there, while well, the king Pekah of Israel, the north, he said, this is our chance to kick Assyria out of the land. And so he formed an alliance with Razin in Damascus and Syria, and probably a couple of others, uh, um, Ascalon and Gaza. Don't worry about those. Um, they're not going to be on the test, so don't worry about that. So. <laughs> but they started forming this alliance to kick out the Assyrians at this time. And they wanted Judah to join in, and Judah didn't want to. Ahaz didn't want to. He was the king at this time. And so uh, Israel and Damascus started attacking Judah and Jerusalem. And they wanted to replace Ahaz with their own king who would join them to kick out Assyria. Well, Ahaz decides that he needs help. And so he sends a messenger to, to uh, Tiglath-Pileser III and says, I am your son and your servant. Come rescue me from the hand of the king of Damascus and the hand of the king of Israel who was attacking me. Well, Tiglath-Pileser says, this is my chance. I have an excuse. And he says, certainly will. And so he comes over and he completely decimates Israel and the whole northern section. And he occupies Judah, and now Judah pays tribute to Assyria. So this is what Isaiah is stepping into. Ahaz, we can criticize him, but you know what? He, would probably, he probably did what every king, politician, president would have done in this place. And that is, feeling under attack, let's go get some military help. Isaiah tells, tries to tell him, we'll see this later on, Isaiah tries to tell him that God's going to protect Jerusalem. It's not going to fall. But Ahaz is thinking, okay, I need, I need some guidance here. And I have to choose to either let God guide me or Assyria come and rescue me. Well, Isaiah's got words, but Assyria's got an army. I think I'll pick the army. Because when you're talking about God, he's not just talking about his own personal life, I need God in my life kind of thing. He is talking about the country. He's talking about the people 
He's talking about lives of people. He's thinking about the economies in danger, et cetera, et cetera. So he goes, for, he goes for the army instead of God. Basically, he's trying to take refuge in a lie. And that's what he does. And Assyria comes in and rescues him. And he's, he's all good. He's, he's, he's saved, supposedly. But what he does, he then goes and visits Assyria. And he goes and sees their altar. If you want to read the story, it's in 2 Kings chapter 16. It's a really horrible story. But he goes and sees their altar in Assyria. And he comes back to Jerusalem and says, I want to build one just like they got. And so he builds an altar to the gods. And he truly does become Assyria's servant and son. Instead of being a servant and son to Yahweh, he becomes a servant and a son to the king of Assyria. And so he builds an altar there, and he's totally immersed in their idolatry. So much so, he sacrifices his own son. This is what Isaiah is up against. This is the culture that he's living in. This is where he's at. I've divided this, this section into the chapter into three, or this up to verse 20 into three sections, this first poem. And it is a poem. Isaiah is a poet. And this image that God has given us is the best way for him to communicate is through poetry, through imagery, and through metaphors. And I've divided it up into basically three sections. And first of all, we have this section where Jerusalem celebrates and God grieves. Jerusalem is glad that Assyria has saved him, and yet God is brokenhearted. I don't see this poem as so much as anger as it is grief. Because he's talking about Israel as his child. He's not just the master and the owner, he is an attentive parent. And he says he reared them up, he has raised them up. This is the word that we use for rearing children. In other words, the, the word says it's, it's that he's nurturing these people. He's nurturing them from infancy to adulthood. He's taking them when they're young and helpless and vulnerable, and he's nurturing them up to strength in adulthood. And he says they've turned their back on me. And it's, it's a, it's a, it's a grief, a broken-hearted grief that he's, that he's dealing with. This relationship has been broken of parent and child. And he uses a couple of word pictures, an oxen and a donkey, and he says they instinctively know that they can depend on their master to care for them. But my child doesn't even, he's, they're not as smart as a donkey. A donkey knows that instinctively, that my, my master will care for me, he will feed me and protect me, and they're not even there. They turn their back. For us, we probably wouldn't use a donkey or an oxen. When I, what comes to my mind is my daughter's rescue dog. That that dog has learned to depend on them and just takes it for granted that there will be food and a bed and shelter. But we, Israel, we don't even have the sense for that. And they break that relationship with Yahweh. They break it, and there's great sorrow in God's heart, an emotional tone here. And this, to me, sets the tone for the rest of the book, and that is a tone of sorrow and grief. My child has turned their back. This poem this week, for one, it, it rang a bell to me, and that bell was the story of the prodigal son in Jesus, uh, in, chapter, in, in Luke chapter 15. That what we have here is that father whose son has run away and is waiting 
and grief for him to return. That's the picture we have. So while Jerusalem may be celebrating that they were saved from Israel, saved from the tax, they are in a pitiful spot. God's patience and long-suffering has been exhausted. He is done. And he calls them to a court of law. He calls heaven and earth to come and be the witnesses. Come and hear this. There's nobody else to call, so he calls heaven and earth. Come and, come and, come and look at this. And he's deeply grieved. And the fault does not lie with Yahweh. It lies with Israel and Israel alone. It lies with God's people. They're the ones who broke the bond. They're the ones who are responsible. They're the ones who refuse the relationship with the Father. It's a basic lack of trust. And he starts off with verse 4. Verse 4 sort of gives this general indictment of where they are. And then he goes by and then mentions some specific things. He says, it starts off with the word woe. My NIV says, ah, really the better word is woe. Because he's about to prepare us to be observers of the destruction of Israel. He's about to prepare us to see this destruction, this self-inflicted wounds that Israel has caused themselves. And it's nothing, nothing short of, woe, this is it. And then he describes them in verse 4. It's like there's this thesaurus of, of Hebrew words for sin. Okay, He says they're a sinful nation. They're loaded with guilt. They're evildoers. They're given to con con corruption. They're forsaking the Lord. They spurn the Holy One. They've turned their backs on Him. They become aliens. It's like, these, it's like, the, like Isaiah pulled out his thesaurus and said, okay, how many words, synonyms can I find for sin? And it's not that each one carries a different connotation. It's just this cumulative effect, this, this barrage of words that he's throwing out. This is, this is how bad off they are. And he even uses the word, he says, they have become alien to me. And it's the same word he uses in verse 7 when he says, your land is being overtaken by aliens and they've been defeated by foreigners. Same word. In other words, they have become to God like Assyrians have become to them. They are completely aliens. And then he says that if the Holy One had not acted, and I love that phrase, the Holy One of Israel, because not only does it set God apart, but it also ties them to God's people. And he ties them to this, he's not just the Holy One, he's the Holy One of Israel. And he says if he, has not, if he had not acted, you would be like Sodom and Gomorrah. There wouldn't be anybody left. But out of grace he steps in. But then he goes on and, tells, and calls them, gives them the new names, Sodom and Gomorrah. He picked the two names that are probably the most abhorrent and despicable names in the Old Testament and applies it to Judah and Jerusalem. He's planted in a way that says, you've been schooled by the Sodom and Gomorrah. You've been schooled by them. You're in the same vein as they are. You're no, no different. And he says, you can go on and go on with your worship, but it's all phony. It's all a charade. It's all a charade of just, did I just say charade? <laughs> Is that how the British say it? Maybe I picked it up from Katie. He said, it's all a charade. The whole worship thing is all a charade. It's all phony. It's all fake. <clears throat> And I don't know why they were continuing this worship. Maybe they were, I, my guess is that they were, it was all transactional, that they could just do the minimal things 
you know, and, and then God would say they, they're okay. They, somehow they could buy God's, God's approval just by doing the minimum. And God says, it's all fake. It's all phony. I don't even enjoy it. He said, this stuff is not for me. This is not what I want. It never was what I wanted. The Old Testament worship was an expression of gratitude. This is, with a, this is the food you have given us. These are the animals you've given us to eat. This is the fruit and the grain you've given us to eat. And we're grateful for your provision. It's not buying God's love or God's approval. And he says, I don't want that. The Old Testament is very clear on that. I desire mercy, not sacrifice, he says. And Jesus repeats that twice in Matthew. It's very clear what God wants. What he's wanting is authenticity. And they have traded a, a theological transaction for authentic worship. And he said, it's all phony and it's all fake. And I really could care less. I really think it's interesting, his way of application, it's just how interesting it is these things of God are actually keeping them from God. And I started thinking about my life, thinking, yeah, sometimes the things of God actually keep me from God himself. This is a common sickness of pastors, <laughs> that we are so preoccupied with the things of God that God himself somehow gets left behind. And God's saying, I don't want it. I want your heart. You say you love me, but you're not showing it. It's just words. I want to see action. And he goes on to say that, that if you love, a love for God would also mean a love for people. That you would defend the homeless, that you would take on the case of the orphan and the widow. That that would be shown. But he says, when you start abandoning me, you will start abandoning, abandoning people. And that's the, sure, that's the surest way to see whether a people is walking with God or not. If we have abandoned people, it's a good, good red flag to say we have abandoned God. Those two things go together. We come to verse 16 and 17, and all of a sudden we've got this change of course. It's like, whoa, this surprises us. Wait a minute. We think that God's patience and long-suffering has totally exhausted. I, I meant to say, sorry about this. I meant to mention a verse. This is, what, this is how Eugene Peterson translates the next paragraph after this poem we're looking at here, just to describe what we're looking at here. He says, the chaste city has become a prostitute. She was once all justice, everyone living as good neighbors. Now they are all one another's throats. Your coins are counterfeit. Your wine is watered down. Your leaders are traitors who keep company with crooks. They sell themselves to the highest bidder and grab anything that's not nailed down. They never stand up for the homeless and they never stick up for the defenseless. This is the symptom of abandoning God. We abandon people. So we've got this first couple of sections. He says, my children have turned away from me. And then he says, you are sick and vulnerable. You are in a pitiful state. And now we get to this last section, verse 16. Now he's saying, but let's get serious here. And he's basically, if this is a court scene, he's calling them to testify. And he says, this is time for a major course correction. And this kind of takes us off guard because it's been so negative. But then he comes back and says, uh, he says, <clears throat> so your hands are full of blood. Wash and make yourselves clean. 
Take your evil deeds out of my sight. Stop doing wrong. Learn to do right. Seek justice. Encourage the oppressed. Defend the cause of the fatherless. And plead the case of the widow. He's saying there's still a chance. You just need to correct course here. You just need to change the direction you're going in. We would call that today repentance. Just change the course you're going. And he gives them these nine commands of, of wash, of clean, take away your evil deeds, stop doing wrong, learn, seek, encourage, defend, plead. He gives us those nine commands. And the first four are like having to do with their relationship with God. And then the last five have to do with their relationship with other people. Sounds a lot like the Ten Commandments, doesn't it? And he says, this is very simple. These are simple steps to do. They're that easy. But they were so far gone, they needed to start and start back very, very simple. He says, these things need to be front and center. You talk about love, show me. And today, I would say that anybody who takes the Bible seriously, these things need to be front and center. If these things are not front and center for us, then I think God could say your worship is phony. These things need to be at the top. And notice here that Isaiah, he's not calling for a regime change. He's not calling to depose Ahaz. Jesus didn't call for a regime change. Isaiah doesn't call for a regime change. What is, what is Isaiah doing? This is why being on the edge of the inside is so radical. Because he is approaching the very consciousness of the people. He's out to change their hearts. Because it's the consciousness, the mindset, the way they are thinking, the people, the way they're thinking. They're, they're the ones who undergird Ahaz, and they're the ones who perpetuate the reign. But they're out to change hearts, to change the consciousness, to change the mindset of the people. And I think that's where we're called to do. I'm not opposed to, in my personal feeling, any activity, any involvement in, in political activity or social uh, causes, things like that. I'm all for it. That's all great. But just remember, as people of God, we are called to change the consciousness. It is a much more radical way to live. It is much more radical, much more forceful, much more incredibly dangerous, and it carries with it an emotional price tag because we will get used to being disappointed we hurt with God when he is hurt. We plead with God. We grieve with him. But there's also joy. There's also joy of a child that returns to the father. And when God runs to a, to a prodigal son, we run with him. And there is joy there. He's basically saying you can choose obedience and acknowledge the life you've given, been given or you can choose despair. You can choose to be devoured. It is a very, very radical thing to be. Basically, Isaiah is repeating Deuteronomy chapter 30, where, where he, God says, I call heaven and earth to witness against you. Remember back in verse two, he says, I'm calling heaven and earth to be my witnesses here. Today that I have set before you life and death, blessings and curse, choose life, so that you and your descendants may live, loving the Lord your God, obeying him and holding fast to him, for that means life to you. Basically, he's saying you have two choices here. You can choose the army. You can choose being occupied by an army, 
or you can choose life. And he says, if you choose me, it doesn't mean that, that bad things will never happen, but what it does mean is that there will be this productive way of dealing with the earth that will bring life, that will bring safety. It's the only way for us to live as vulnerable human beings. We can produce, we can, we can choose an occupying army, or we can choose faith. And that is not common sense. That is not your normal political choice, as we saw with Ahaz, but it's the way God will protect us. We are always, ultimately, ultimately safe in the hands of Yahweh. He is the one who saves us. It does take his emotional toll, but I want just as a just as a review real quickly, I want to do five takeaways from Isaiah chapter chapter one. First of all, living on the edge of the inside dares us to experience what we experience. And what I mean by that is we actually keep our eyes open, as Isaiah did in chapter six. We see and we hear. We experience what we're experiencing. We get out of our numbness. We get out of our apathy. And I love that the hymn that we just sang, uh, uh, you know, just how beautiful the, the earth is. Just that little thing of how he whispers to us through the rustling grass. My grandfather's favorite, favorite hymn was in the garden because he would go through the garden and he always had a garden, a vegetable garden, and he said, there's where he walks with me and he talks with me. And we get a lot of criticism, but Big Daddy would get a lot of criticism for that. That's too mystical. He goes, well, that's the way it is. He walks with me and he talks to me. We experience what we experience. Living on the edge of the inside challenges us to offer ourselves in authentic worship. Challenge us to offer ourselves in authentic worship. That means we're willing to embrace who we are, take a good look at who we are, take a good look at, at, at our situation, our area, take a good look at, at, at what's going on in our hearts and offer God authentic worship. Living on the edge of the inside is more radical than political or social action. Those things are not bad, but if you want to live in a radical way, this is the way to do it. This is the way because we're actually dealing with heart issues. Living on the edge of the inside dares us to imagine that the same Holy One of Israel is willing to both disrupt us and embrace us that we're giving him permission to say, look what's going on, and maybe disrupt our life, but also giving us, we also gives us permission to come back and be embraced by him. Whereas Isaiah says that used to be the sin of bloody color of red is now innocent snow. What used to be the crimson color of guilt is now pure innocence. He does both. Living on the edge of the inside demands that we give up our fantasy to rule. We rule in lots of ways. It may be tyranny in our marriage. It may be ruling the way we rule, think we control our business or our coworkers or our, or our classrooms or wherever we are, our families. It may be nursing hatred and, and, uh, and anger towards someone or some, or some group and thinking that somehow we get security in that. But living on the edge of the inside, in God's world, experiencing what other people experience, we can give up that fantasy. 
give up that fantasy that we're in control because that's all it is. Isaiah has continuing power for us. And it's not just those historical judgments that has power. It's the theological stuff that's in the book. It's that theological stuff that says the Holy One of Israel is always central. That the Holy One of Israel is, everything revolves around the Holy One of, of, of Israel. That he decides, he decrees, he's doing, he makes the decisions, and we decide to be different. He summons us to faith to this day, and we rely on Yahweh in every single circumstance. Every single circumstance. And we'll talk about that next week a little bit more, about our reliance on him. That the gospel is won by faith. God is not looking for works to win him over. He's just looking for authenticity. He's just looking for a heart that says, I need him. He is my father, and I'm his child. And we live on the edge of the inside if God has called us. And that is hard. It's hard today. But was it any harder for Isaiah? I don't think so. He calls us to live in him, but on the edge where people live. We're going to celebrate communion this morning to do that. And um, it's a time of, of submitting ourselves again to his sovereignty, his lordship. And uh, we did not put the, the little communion cups out there um, this morning to pick up. We thought we would go ahead and hand it out. Uh, but we'll do that in, in just a minute uh, when we're going to spend some time in silent prayer. And while we're in prayer, I'm going to ask the ushers if they will come up and, and hand it out and just hold on to it, and we will uh, get that at together. But the thing about the Lord's table is that we come with nothing to prove. You know, we don't have anything to prove. Um, there's nothing to protect. Uh, I have nothing to sell you. I have nothing to sell to God to try to convince him. It's just this simple idea of being present at the Lord's table. And it's a simple idea that the Lord is present to us. <laughs> Christian history has spent a lot of time and a lot of ink trying to explain the Lord's Supper. But basically that's all it is. It's just being present to Jesus and having Jesus be present to us. And the thing is, um, what communion is telling us is that God is the food that we all need and the only thing we provide that we come is the hunger. We come with the hungry, hunger, that's, that's all we need. And we have to train ourselves each day to be hungry. Um, so when we're hungry, that means there's no room um, for another presence. There's no room for my own opinions. There's no room for my own ideas or my own righteousness or my own superiority or my own success. There's no room for any of that stuff. Just hunger, just a longing. That's it. I have been a, a part of a church that uh, attempted to define who was worthy to take communion and who was not. Uh, we even used communion as a discipline tool. That when somebody needed discipline, we would withhold communion. I put up with that for too long. That is not the reason for communion. The reason for communion is that we're hungry. And in my experience, 
sinners are hungrier than the self-righteous. And that's why this table is open to everyone. If you are hungry, you're welcome to take communion with us. What I would like to do is spend some silent time in prayer um, confessing. It's a time of confessing of, uh, of our own sin, our own self-righteousness, our own superiority, our own uh, anger, our own whatever. So we're going to take some time to do that. And I'm going to ask those ushers that were doing with, helping with the uh, offering, if you come out and, and pass out the cups and uh, the bread while we're spending some time in silence, I would appreciate that. And uh, hopefully you can return to your seats in time to also spend some time with the Lord.